So um, what, does a, what does a proper Christian look like? Okay, what, does a, what does a proper Christian look like? I don't, I don't mean what do they physically look like, you know, as though there might be some sort of aura around them or something like that. I don't mean that. But rather, what, what kind of signs would you look for? What, what kind of marks would you look for that, that ought to characterize a, a real Christian, a true Christian? I'm, I'm not thinking here about, uh, about what makes someone a Christian, uh, but rather, how would I know one when I see one? Um, or, or even, how would I know that I'm one? Um, now, of course, people might respond to that a couple of different ways. So, so some would want to talk about what someone says they believe. Okay, so if someone says they're a Christian, they, they know something of what Christians believe, uh, maybe we simply take them at their word. It's about what you believe. Uh, others would say, well, it's not so much about what you believe, but it's about what you do. Um, m- maybe you know some people who, um, they, they, they don't go to church, they don't pray very much, they don't, they don't even necessarily believe in the death of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, but they still speak of themselves as a Christian because they agree kind of broadly with the, the morals of Christianity as they understand them or, or accept them. They, they try to kind of live out those morals in their life as, as best they can. So are they true Christians? How would you know? Um, is it about what they believe or is it about what they do? Um, and, and that's quite an important question, actually, isn't it? It's a relevant question because um, we might be asking that question of ourselves, am I a true Christian? Or we might be asking that question about someone else who claims to be a Christian. You know, there are uh, many people who sadly have written off the Christian message as, as sort of fake news because they've known people who claim to be Christians but whose lives didn't commend Christ to others. So they say, well, if the God you claim to follow you know, is anything like you, well, I don't really want to know him. So it's, it's a relevant question, isn't it? And of course, it was a relevant question for the people that John is writing this letter to here as well. Because, as we saw last week, if you were, if you were here, um, the Apostle John, he's writing this letter to a group of churches whose confidence in the truth of Jesus is being undermined. Um, as we saw, there seems to be a group of people who claim that they had a kind of special uh, anointing from God by which they have been given uh, like the true knowledge uh, of God. However, as we saw, it's not the true knowledge of God at all, says John, but actually it's a false knowledge of God. It's faulty truth. They're, they're teaching these Christians that, that, um, that basically the things in the, in the physical realm, in the bodily realm, in the, in the material realm, they're, they're basically bad and, and, and unimportant. Um, but the things in the spiritual realm, they're the important things. They're the good things. They're the things that are to be focused on. And that belief of theirs, we call it Gnosticism today, it was kind of early Gnosticism, it it led uh, these false teachers into a couple of dangerous errors, a theological one and a moral one. Uh, The the dangerous theological error it led them to was to deny the incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus was God come in human flesh. They denied that because they just couldn't accept that God would take on a body. Bodies are bad, right? Right? It also led them into a serious uh, moral error of believing that sin didn't really matter. What you did with your body was basically unimportant. It's what you believed that counted. 
And, and that false teaching had caused them, it seems, to kind of split from the church that, that John was in and caused some of them, at least, to be pitching up in neighboring churches and kind of spreading this false teaching around uh, about Jesus, teaching that was undermining uh, the Christians' confidence in their faith. You know, it was causing them to ask, well, if these guys are the ones that, that you know, are really in the know about God and, and they teach this stuff, well, then do I really know God at all? You know, can I be confident that I really know him? Can I know that I know God and that, that I therefore have eternal life in him? So, so John's writing to them to give them confidence in the truth about Jesus. Confidence to counter the false teaching that he's undermining uh, their, their confidence so that they can know that they really do know God. Because that's what he wants for them. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, he says in chapter 5 verse 13, that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's writing to give them certainty and to counter the false teaching that's undermining it. See? So last week, if you're here last week, he kind of started his letter, chapter 1, bringing them back, if you like, to the foundations of the Christian faith that he wanted them to be certain of. Things that they can stand by, things that they can live by. And, and which included him affirming the truth of the incarnation, didn't it? In verses 1 to 4, that Jesus is indeed the, the eternal divine word of God and that in himself is eternal life. And that he's been uh, made manifest, as chapter 1 put it, in our world. In other words, he's, he's come. And, and people have heard and seen and touched him. And then they've testified and proclaimed and written down uh, his, uh, of his coming. So that we who were not there can have the same fellowship with God that the apostles who were there have. So he's, he's taken on, hasn't he, the false teacher's theological error. He's shown them why they can be certain of Christ's incarnation, certain that he is God come in the flesh. And then he, is, he, he took on their, 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 their moral error, the false teacher's moral error, uh, uh, and shown why you can't claim to know God and yet think that sin doesn't exist or doesn't matter. And this is because the God who has revealed himself in Jesus, in verses 1 to 4, has revealed himself to be a God who is light, verse 5 says. In other words, a God that's morally holy and pure. And so if people claim to follow God, who is light, while they walk in darkness and, and, and sin as though it doesn't matter or, or doesn't exist, well, they're lying, John says. Because you can't be in fellowship with a God who is light, whose, whose ways are, are moral and pure, while you're walking in darkness. In other words, in rejection of those ways. But rather the true Christian the one who knows God and has fellowship with God is not someone who walks in darkness, but someone who walks in the light, verse 7 of chapter 1. In other words, who seeks to reflect God's moral purity in their own lives and, and, and therefore admit their sin when it happens, verse 9. Not, not sweeping it under the carpet because it doesn't exist or doesn't matter, but rather confessing it, verse 9, to a God who cleanses us from all sin because of the blood of his son that was shed on the cross. Now here in chapter 2, we're effectively given, if you like, some tests, I guess, or some signs against which to evaluate the claims of those who say that they know God. And as we'll see, for, for John, of course, whether someone is a true Christian or not is about what they believe 
and what they do. Right? It's not either or, it's, it's both and. A true Christian is someone with faith in Christ that makes a real, tangible difference to how they live. And, and these, these marks, if you like, of a, of a true Christian, I think they're really helpful for us to see as well. Because there's stuff here to comfort the fearful. Okay, if we're worried that, that, that because we continue to sin, sometimes that we can't be a true Christian. So there's comfort for the fearful. There's also here stuff to challenge the complacent. If, if we're t- tempted to think that because we're forgiven, we can live how we like. Well, there's a challenge here for us. And then the stuff I think here to encourage all of us as we, as we press on in following Christ. So let me kick off with verses 1 and 2. Have a look at verses 1 and 2, which is about comfort for the fearful Christian. Um, have a look at verse 1 with me. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John's concern there, look, verse 1, is that people would not sin. But if you remember last week in chapter 1, we were left in no doubt at all that we do sin. We are sinners. You know, um, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, if you flick back to it, uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Or, or, Or chapter 1, verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. And his word that that says we are sinners is therefore not in us. So a true Christian is someone who admits that they are sinners. It's not someone who dupes themselves into thinking that they're not and in doing so rejects God's word. However, the fact that we are sinners doesn't mean that we condone sin. It doesn't mean that we're comfortable with the, the sin in our lives. No, on the contrary, God is light. Right? He's utterly pure and holy. And, and so for us to walk in the light, it means admitting that we are sinners. And so being utterly dependent upon God's undeserved love to us in Christ is grace. Which means that the true Christian will know who Christ is. Right? He'll know, end of verse 1, that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. See, many people who might like to think of themselves as Christians have got different ideas about who Jesus is, right? Some would say, oh, yeah, Jesus, he was a good teacher. Um, Or or they might say, yeah, yeah, Jesus, good moral example. If we all lived a bit more like Jesus, the, the world would be a better place, and so on. But the Bible says he's way more than that. He is, in fact, Jesus Christ, the righteous Right? In other words, yes, he's Jesus, the human man born into the history of the world, but he's also the Christ. Right? He's God's anointed king. He's God's Messiah, whom John reminded us back in chapter 1, is God the Son, you know, pre-existent with the Father, but who took on flesh in, in the person of Jesus. He's God. And he's the righteous one. Because he's God himself in the flesh, he's therefore the, he's the human embodiment of, of God is light. He's, he's utterly moral. He's utterly pure. Because he is God. And because of that, he alone can say that he was without sin. He alone has lived the only life in history that pleases God. 
And so only he is qualified to be our advocate. In other words, to speak to the Father in our defense. So the the language here is kind of courtroom language, if you like. The image is of us being in the dock, as it were, because we're guilty of sin, but of Christ being our advocate, somebody who speaks to the Father in our defense. Not, not, Not speak to him to say that we're innocent, because we're not innocent, we're guilty. But to speak to him to say that he has already taken our punishment as he sacrificed himself on the cross in our place. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation there, it means, uh, it means making God favorably disposed towards us by, by turning aside his, his righteous anger at our sin. It's, it's, it's what we thought about last week in, in chapter 1, verse 9, isn't it? How can God be faithful and just and yet forgive sin? How can he do that? Because, you know, a just God ought to judge our sin, didn't he? He he can't pretend that it doesn't matter. That's not being just. But he can be both just and forgiving because Jesus faced the punishment of our sin instead of us on the cross. His death in our place turns aside, right, propitiates God's righteous anger against our sin by causing it to fall on Jesus instead of on us, so that God is able to be both just and forgiving. Do you see? So so this not only tells us who Christ is, he's our perfect advocate with the Father, but also it tells us what Christ did and why he is our perfect advocate. Do do you see? He can speak to the Father on our behalf and, and say that the punishment for our sin has already been paid for. And he paid for it himself on the cross. And that's what the true Christian knows and trusts in. Right? He knows who Christ is. That he's not simply a good moral teacher or a fine moral example or whatever. He is our advocate with the Father. And he's uniquely qualified to be our advocate with the Father because he is both fully God and fully man and so perfectly righteous, meaning that his death on the cross is uniquely able to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin, to turn away God's righteous anger at our sin so that we can be justly forgiven and and warmly welcomed into his family. So friend, can I ask you, Do you know this Christ? And is it this work of his on the cross that you're trusting in to deal with your sin? And and if it is, if it is the Christ you know and trust in, do you see the comfort here for you? For the true Christian who is fearful about their sin, do you see the comfort? For the person who doesn't pretend that sin doesn't matter or doesn't exist, but is actually painfully aware of the fact that it does, and and is perhaps prone to worry that the reality of their ongoing struggle with sin might mean they don't really know God at all, that they've got no certainty that they're truly a Christian. I wonder whether you struggle with that. Do you struggle with that? Are you ever fearful? That because you still sin, you may not really know God? Well, John writes these words here to reassure you, to bring you comfort by reminding you that Christ is your advocate and that the basis on which he is your advocate, the basis on which he defends you, is not because you're innocent of sin. Both you and he know that's not true. 
But rather the basis on which he speaks for you is that he took your sin on himself. He died as an atoning sacrifice that was completely successful in turning away God's anger at your sin. In other words, friend, it's all been paid for already on the cross and Jesus did it. And not just for you. He's not just the propitiation for our sins, verse 2, but also for the sins of the whole world. Which doesn't mean, of course, that Christ's death saves everyone in the world, you know, whether we've trusted in Christ or not. It doesn't mean that. It means rather that through his death, forgiveness of sins is now offered for the whole world's sin. It will only be enjoyed by those who accept it by faith. But its offer is for the whole world, no matter who you are. Which means, brothers and sisters, that it needs to be declared to all. Okay, We're not simply to sit back and enjoy the fact that we're forgiven. But we're also to share with others the fact that God wants them to know that forgiveness too. You see? So there's comfort. Isn't there? Comfort for the fearful Christian in verses 1 to 2. But in verses 3 to 6, look, there's also a challenge for the complacent Christian. And he kind of, um, he kind of whips out his sledgehammer uh, at this point, I think, to kind of to test the integrity of our claim to know God, to be a, a true Christian. Verse 3, look. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Did did you get that? How do I know that I've really come to know God, that I'm a true Christian? Well, that's easy. It's if we obey Jesus' commandments, which is quite uncomfortable reading, isn't it? But it's not really really ambiguous. (laughs) See, the true Christian is someone who knows that it's disobeying God that makes us his enemies. And so, having been forgiven and made friends with God because of Christ's death in our place, we'll now be people who obey God. Right? We'll want to please him by obeying what he commands so that we become more like him. If we know God as God, we're not going to question whether he knows best. We'll know that he does. And so the desire of our hearts will be to go God's way. In fact, verse 4, look, John makes the same point in the negative, doesn't he? He says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Do you see, the, the, the Christian is someone who knows God as God and so obeys God. Verse 3. Therefore, the person who claims to be a Christian but doesn't obey God is clearly lying because his claim is being contradicted by his behavior. Do you you get the point? If if he says he's a Christian, but actually he's got no interest in pleasing God, really, then any claim he makes to know him or love him, it's a spurious claim, isn't it? To know God is to love God, and to love God is to obey God. So if we say that we know him, uh, if we say that we love him, but we refuse to obey him, then our refusal to obey him reveals that either we don't really know him or we don't really love him enough to obey him. Now, of course, we need to be a bit careful here, don't we? Because uh, 
understood wrongly, of course, we could all conclude from those verses that none of us knows God (laughs) because none of us obeys him perfectly or anything like perfectly. But but his point here is to challenge us about the, the attitude of our hearts and our wills towards obeying God. Do I want to please him? By obeying what he says. Is that, the, is that the settled desire of my heart? Such that it's what I'm striving for. It's what I'm praying for in my living. Or am I just not particularly bothered about that? You know, if someone at work discovered my claim to be a Christian, would they say, oh yeah, you know, I thought there was something different about him. Or would they be totally shocked? Because when we're away from Christians... There's just no attempt to live in obedience to what God says. Well, the claim that we know God is shown up to be a lie, John says, just just empty words, if it's not evidenced in a life that is seeking to please him by obeying what he says. While those who do obey his word, verse 5, are shown by their obedience of it to be those who really love God. Those in whom the love of God is being perfected, verse 5. Those in whom God's love is achieving its purpose. Do you see the, the test here that we are true Christians? is not that we like turning up on Sundays and singing his praises while we live the rest of the week ignoring what he says and living like the rest of the world around us does. Now, the test here that we're true Christians, that we really know and love him, is that we are seeking to live our lives increasingly, as he gives us grace, in obedience to the commands and the promises of his word, so that we would become increasingly like him. In other words, it's faith in Christ, trust in Christ, that makes a real tangible difference to our living. Right? Whoever says he abides in him, verse 6, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, Jesus walked. And now look, if you look at verse, uh, verses 7 to 11, he gets kind of more specific here. A, a true Christian is one whose faith in Christ makes a real tangible difference to their living. And this will be especially evidenced in their, in their obedience to the, the specific obligation to love their fellow believers. Okay? He's, he's kind of he's anticipating an objection to what he's just been said. You know, he's, he's been talking about the necessity of obeying God. He anticipates someone objecting to that emphasis by saying, well, you know, hey, John, um, I, I thought Christianity was all about what Jesus has done for me. You know, not about my obedience to him, but now you're kind of saying my obedience is is important as well. What's that all about? Well, have a look at verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you uh, no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So he's saying to them, well, well, what I'm about to tell you about about active love for others in obedience to what God says, it's it's in one sense nothing new. 
Right? It's not a new command, but an old one that you've had from the beginning. Uh, uh, that's true, of course, isn't it? It's right there in the, in the law that, that God gave to, to Moses. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's back in Leviticus 19. It's an old command. It, it was also a command given by Jesus when he taught the, the, about the, the great commandment uh, that, that summarizes all the other uh, commands of God. Love for God and love for others. You know, Mark 12, for example. That's why John can say that this is the word that you heard, verse 7. It's Jesus' message. But he also says in verse 8 that it it is a new commandment. So in what sense is it a new commandment? John tells them, I think, in verse 8, it's a new commandment in the sense that it's true in him, in Jesus, verse 8. In other words, for the first time in the history of the world, the command to love one another was perfectly lived out in the human life of Jesus. So although it was an old command that's never out of date, what's new about it is that now it's been lived out and fulfilled to perfection in Jesus. But you know, that's not the staggering thing here, is it? The staggering thing is that not only is it a new command because it's true in him, but because it's true in him and in you. You see that in verse 8? So not only has Christ come and lived out that command to perfection in himself, but with the coming of Christ, uh, the darkness of the present age, verse 8, is already giving way to the light of, of Christ's coming kingdom. And of course, as members of that kingdom, with its new covenant, you know, where his commands are written on, a, on our minds and hearts, well, we too have all of Christ's resources in order to live out that command in our lives as well. Hence, Jesus is able to take that old command and say, as he, as he does uh, in, in John 13, uh, 34, a new command I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you see? Jesus gives the old command as a new command, having modeled to perfection what it looks like in his own life and and supremely in his death on the cross, of course. And then he says to his disciples, you do it too. Right, You love others as I've loved you, and by this, people will recognize that you're a true Christian. My friends, we just can't, we can't sidestep what John confronts us with here, can we? If we claim to be Christians, then our living, and supremely our love for each other, must reflect that of the Christ that we claim to follow. Do you see? And what does that look like? Here's a worked example of what it looks like in verses 9 to 11. Have a look at uh, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
And, and I think it's important here that we don't just focus on the negative, as it were, and, and think that these verses only address us if we hate any of our fellow Christians. Of course, they, of course they do address us if we do hate uh, um, in, in that way. And, and uh, we need to take God's word very seriously here. If you claim to be a Christian, but you hate your brother, you are not walking in the light of Christ's coming kingdom. You're blundering around in the darkness of this present worldly kingdom. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that what John calls love here is simply the absence of hatred. Because it isn't. It's, it's much more than that. His point here is to say that we must actively love one another. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And friends, I I think that's becoming more and more difficult in a culture that becomes more and more individualistic. You know, um, an Englishman's home is his castle. We we say, uh, you know, my life is my life. It's for me and mine. Uh, And so we keep ourselves to ourselves simply because we don't want other people in our lives so much. Or we we might think, if I mix with others, you know, even other Christians who I imagine aren't quite as saintly as I am, you know, I might get infected by their weaker doctrine or what I imagine to be their more worldly lifestyle. So I guard my holiness by keeping myself kind of sealed off, you know, to keep my soundness intact. But friends, that's not loving my brother and sister. Right, who needs me to love them and help them to walk in the light too. So for me to get kind of all wrapped up in myself and just keep myself to myself and work on my own character in, in sort of glorious isolation, you know, in a little bubble away from others, that will not lead to greater love for others. Because that is, that is basically self-love, isn't it? And of course, self-love is the enemy of real love. You see, friends, it's not simply the absence of hatred that John's talking about here. And and neither is it even giving an impression of love with our lips, but not with our hearts and our actions. Now, a a true Christian is one with faith in Christ that shows itself in positive, active uh, love for others. If we claim to walk in the light then we are to be defined by the strength and the depth of our love for others. Love that is seen more and more by God's grace as we we share our homes, as we share our struggles, as we share our lives with one another. So John's been showing us, hasn't he, what a true Christian looks like and there's been comfort here for the fearful Christian. There's been challenge here for the complacent Christian. But as he finishes, look, verses 12 to, to 14, I think it's with encouragement here for every Christian. Okay, he's, he's kind of summing up for them here. He's, he's bringing together all of the themes that he's addressed so far in these, these first couple of chapters, and he's using them to encourage his, his readers. So he's pointing out to them what's been true of them so far, their, their convictions, in order to encourage them in the face of these false teachers to keep going. With, with those same convictions. You, you'll notice that there's kind of three groups of people that he addresses in the church. He addresses each group twice uh, in, in verses 12 to 14. So he addresses the whole church, all right, at the beginning of verse 12 and at the end of verse 13. That's who he affectionately calls his little children, okay, because that's what they are. They're, they're children of God. And he wants them to know, he wants them to be assured that as children of God, verse 12, your sins are forgiven 
for his name's sake. And he wants them to know, end of verse 13, I write to you children because you know the Father. Okay, so he wants all of the the Christians he's writing to, to know, to be certain that their sins have been forgiven on account of Christ's name, which means, verse 13, that they really do know God. They know the Father. Do you see, he wants them to be certain of that, that although they're sinners, they've been forgiven in Christ, which means they know God. And then he addresses some of his readers, and this would be the kind of the older, more mature members among them, those who have been Christians for longer, so he calls them fathers, but he means spiritually mature women uh, uh, just as much. And he wants them to know, he wants them to be sure that they know him who is from the beginning, verse 13 and 14. So all God's children know the Father and that he has accepted them in Christ, but to the more mature among them, he he also wants to say to them, he also wants them to be sure that Jesus, the Jesus they claim to know, the one who was from the beginning, is the real Jesus. The Christ that was from the beginning, the, the, as he told them in chapter 1, in, in other words, the, the pre-existent, the, the eternally divine Christ, that Christ, they know. In, in this environment where false teachers are seeking to teach them another Christ, John's reminding the mature among them, this is the one that you know. Not some false Christ who, who is something less than God and, and that the false teachers are trying to peddle. But the real deal, God in the flesh, he's the one you know. And he's the one to keep knowing. The one to deepen your knowledge of. In other words, the mature Christian will will be convinced of his need to know Jesus more deeply. So this is what he's encouraging them towards, you see. And then there's a final group of people here, what he calls young men. I think he means young women equally as much. So these would be people who were in the early years of their Christian lives. Right? And what he wants them to be sure of is that they have overcome the evil one, verse 13, verse 14, and that they are strong and the word of God abides in them. Isn't that, isn't that great that you love that? To even the newest of Christians, John wants them to be confident that they've been rescued from Satan's grip such that he has no more power over them. And not only that, but also, verse 14, that the strength that these young Christians are evidently enjoying as they seek to walk in the light, it doesn't come from them, right? It's not because they're full of the energy of youth, (laughs) but it's come from the word of God at work in them. And friends, maybe you can see the implication of that. If you're a a younger Christian in in the faith, you know, less years in the faith, I'd love you to notice here that John wants to encourage the new generation of Christians, not just the older generation, to be taking up the fight to live out and stand up for the truth of God's word. And he wants you especially to know that the strength you need to live the Christian life and and battle against the, the world, the flesh and the devil Well, it it comes from the truth of God's revelation about himself in his word. It's the sword of the spirit, as as Paul puts it in Ephesians 6. And so nothing matters more, 
friends, for the future health and strength of Christ's church than that its fathers, if you like, its more mature members, are teaching its younger men, its less mature members, the word of God. Friends, the ultimate weapon, the sword of the spirit, uh, um, uh, against the false teaching that these Christians are facing here, is of course what? It's, it's this letter, isn't it? And, and, and others like it in, in the scriptures. In other words, it, it's God's word that gives the strength to God's church to stand against the, the barrage of, of false teaching that seeks to permeate it and undermine it. Which means, friends, that we, we must not neglect to teach God's word and, and we must not neglect to be taught by God's word lest we have no defense against the, the many false teachings that still cause God's people to lose confidence in Christ today. So what, is a, what does a true Christian look like? Well, a true Christian has faith in this Christ that makes a real tangible difference to their lives. And would God's word comfort us if we're fearful? Would it challenge us if we are complacent? Would it encourage us all as God's children as we seek to live out our faith in the world? Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, um, for the comfort, the challenge, the encouragement that you give us in these verses. Thank, thank you too that you know our hearts, you know our needs, you know our temptations as well. So we ask that you would increasingly work your word into our lives so that we would be those who who walk the talk and know that we know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.